You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Well, good evening, church. Uh, Would you please take your seats? Just as an FYI, uh, I've been feeling pretty under the weather these last two weeks, so I apologize if you hear me hacking into this mic. I know it's really gross, but I have some hot tea and a couple of cough drops, so just bear with me. Tonight, we will be taking a break from our series in the book of Mark. We're going to be starting a new five-week series on the doctrines of grace, uh, or what is also known as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, These phrases are interchangeable, and I want you to know that tonight because I'll be using them interchangeably. Uh, But for anyone who is a visitor, uh, normally we pick a book of the Bible and we walk our way through the entire book verse by verse. Uh, However, tonight I'll be preaching topically instead of expositionally. And our topic at hand for tonight is the Reformed Doctrine of Total Depravity. As you guys know, uh, I continually try to improve on my preaching. So one thing I want to do for you guys is to give you a simple outline of where we're going tonight. Um, So if you're a note taker, you can write this down if you'd like. Uh, If you just want to make a mental note of it and and follow, that's fine as well. But tonight we have four main headings that we're going to be working with. The first is where did the five points of Calvinism come from? Where or what does the Reformed doctrine of total depravity teach? The third is, is this doctrine biblical? And the fourth is, why does this doctrine matter? So, I hope to show us where these doctrines come from, uh, what the specific doctrine teaches, that it is biblical, and that it's extraordinarily important. However, before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today for corporate worship. I thank you for all the people that are here and the church family that you have blessed us with. And Lord, I come to you now asking for help Uh, to explain the things of God in a way that can be clearly understood. We ask that you would help us as we try to understand who we are, who you are, and how you have saved us. May we be blessed to hear the truths already known, and let us always remember and never find them dull. For those who have never understood these truths before, we ask that you would give them clarity of mind and to be able to comprehend them. Help me, Lord, and help us. Encourage us in the gospel. And we ask that you would be glorified tonight. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen. All right. Now, uh, because I'm starting off this series on the five points, I think it's worthy to give a summary of how we got them. Uh, It's important for us to know where our theological viewpoints come from and how they came to be known in the church. So let's take take a look at our first point. Where did the five points of Calvinism come from? And this question uh, takes us back hundreds of years to the early 1600s in the Netherlands. At this point in time, there was a clash of regional and national government happening over the seven northern provinces in the Netherlands. And within that clash of governmental powers was a major debate that arose over the official teaching of the church in the Netherlands. The Dutch Calvinists ruled the majority of the teaching Um, in in this region, and however, there was another theological group that had developed and rose up opposing them. These were known as the Remonstrants. The Remonstrants were devoted followers of a theologian by the name of Jacobus Arminius, and this is the man uh, with the name, I mean, with the theology named after him called Arminianism. You'd be very familiar. This group had formed after the death of Arminius, 
and gave a serious amount of pushback to the Reformed Dutch Calvinists in the region. So the remonstrance, causing such a stir and charging the Dutch Calvinists' beliefs into question, called on governmental leaders to make an official decision as to what the church was officially going to teach in these seven northern provinces of the Netherlands. So these churches did not believe in church governance or national government like we do here in the United States. It was very different. Um, these churches do not believe in a congregationalist form of, go of church governance like we do as Baptists. They were what are called sacralists. They actually believed that the national government and the church should function as one together. Uh, that the government and the church should be united and work as one single unit. So this is why this became such a major issue is because the established Reformed reform church in this region was being challenged by a new theological belief in church. So the remonstrance then drew up what is called the five articles of remonstrance. That is five points of doctrine that they took issue with the established Reformed church. So because of the remonstrance created such a stir and called on a national or called on national government leaders to challenge the official doctrinal stance that already existed, a national synod was called. Now, a synod is just an assembly of ordained church leaders. Uh, these are major church officials. And the synod was called the Synod of Dort because the synod gathered in the city of Dortrecht in the Netherlands in 1618. So this synod had national representation, uh, ordained church leaders from various other countries. They had representatives from places like England, Scotland, Geneva, and they reached out having people travel from afar to discuss these matters because this would not only just affect their local and regional church understanding of, of governance and theology, but the remonstrance called the entire theological system into question. So all that to say, this was by no means just a small or local gathering of people to discuss theological issues. The attack of the Remonstrants or the Arminians on the Calvinists had caused these two theological camps to bring all of their resources out and just duke it out. So this was no small thing. And it is here that the Dutch Calvinists develop what is now known as the five points of Calvinism in response to the five articles of Remonstrance. So after a year of vigorous debate from both sides, the Synod of Dort finally ends. And the outcome is that the Arminians were refuted and the Synod ruled in the favor of the Calvinists, ruling that the Arminian church would stop teaching and actually attempted to remove their pastors. So this Synod is where the doctrines of grace were articulated together in order to defend the Reformed faith. Now I want to be clear about something. These doctrines had, ex had existed long before the Synod was called. Uh, these doctrines existed well before John Calvin. These doctrines were not made up out of thin air for this synod. And there's, there was a rich theological tradition that had been teaching these doctrines for hundreds of years before the synod was called. Um, and it was because of these doctrines that were, it's because these doctrines were already well established that the remonstrants actually used them as a framework to challenge the Calvinists. So John Calvin did not create these five points himself. He did not single out five specific doctrines um, and claimed them as his own. And it was over 100 years later that the acrostic tulip, as you guys know, uh, was made as a memory device for the five points. So, however, uh, you know, Calvin is loved for his theological precision and clarity of teaching, especially on these points. And over time, these points were attributed to him, and uh, though they existed long before him. So, we've taken uh, a second to give a brief overview of where the doctrines of grace came from. The five points were articulated at the Synod of Dort, 
in response to the attacks of the Armenian church. And the acrostic was made years later um, to remember the doctrines of grace that Calvin taught so clearly. So this brings us to the first of the five points, which is the T for total depravity. This is the doctrine that we will be focusing on tonight. Now, moving on to the second heading, this is actually where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. Uh, I've tried to be explicitly clear and very thorough, uh, as clear as I could be on this second heading, and I really tried to structure this portion of this sermon to be able to, to, be able to follow it, because I know it, it can uh, be hard. So hopefully you guys can walk away and understand with what I'm saying. Uh, I tried really hard. So the second main heading, what does the doctrine of total depravity teach? Uh, for note takers, if you'd like a clear thesis statement, this is the one for you. The doctrine of total depravity teaches that mankind, by the fall of Adam, has inherited original sin, radically corrupting man to his core and rendering him morally unable of producing any spiritual good. And I'll read that one more time. The doctrine of total depravity teaches that mankind, by the fall of Adam, has inherited original sin, radically corrupting man to his core and rendering him morally unable of producing any spiritual good. Now, if you were to ask most Christians what this doctrine is, um, they would either not know what it is at all, or they would give you an explanation that wasn't totally accurate. And that's because there's a great amount of confusion and misinformation on this doctrine. And it's not because it's been explained, um, it's, it's not because it hasn't been explained clearly in the past, but there's a lot of assumptions that get hurled into the arena of discussion when we're addressing this doctrine. So, with our thesis statement already established, and for the sake of clarity, we're actually going to start off by explaining what the doctrine of total depravity does not teach. And for this, I have two things I'd like to cover. So, the first thing that it does not teach is that total depravity equals utter depravity. Uh, for many people, they will mix these two levels of depravity together and claim that the doctrine of total depravity teaches what is known as utter depravity. Utter depravity is the belief that mankind, by the fall of Adam, has inherited original sin, radically corrupting man to his core, and rendering him as wicked as man could possibly be. Now, you'll notice that this definition that I've given for utter depravity is close to the definition of total depravity. But it's the last sentence that's changed. Instead of rendering man unable of producing any spiritual good, we now have rendering him as wicked as he could possibly be. So that's a big change. The doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man is as wicked as he could possibly be because we believe that God has given what is called common grace to mankind. Common grace is an act of grace that God gives to all. Um, leaving man spiritually dead in his sin, yet restraining man from being as wicked as he could possibly be without his intervention. So common grace is something that the Lord gives to everyone. And, and think of just the worst people you've ever learned of, right? Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Jeffrey Dahmer, the list can go on and on and on. These are very wicked people, but they could have been far worse. The everyday normal human can and would be far worse than we've ever even experienced if God did not use common grace to restrain man. Now, when we turn the coin of common grace over, we actually find another example. Common grace would be, another example of this common grace would be God allowing sinful man 
to experience joy of marriage and friendship. So they deserve much worse for their sin, uh, but God is still gracious to the sinner by allowing them to experience joy in this life. Though a wretched sinner, it is by common grace that man can still perform moral acts, though it does not find uh, pleasing to the Lord. And these sinners can live culturally moral lives. They can perform what society deems to be good works, but they would still be spiritually wicked. So the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man is as evil as he could possibly be. Now, the second thing that the doctrine of total depravity does not teach is that man has no will. Total depravity teaches that man does have a will, but that it is in bondage to sin. Before the fall, a man could and had the ability to choose to do moral and spiritual good because they had no sin nature. They did not know sin. After the fall, man's freedom of choice... um, Excuse me, I lost myself. Yeah, Uh, they did not know sin. So Adam and Eve were created perfect. They had a will that was totally free. And after the fall, man's freedom of choice to be able to choose to do spiritual good was ruined. And this, just in this certain area, is completely lost by the fall. This does not mean that man has completely lost his power of choosing or making decisions in general, but that his freedom in this area of doing moral and spiritual good has been totally lost. Man's will to do any spiritual or moral good is enslaved in bondage and sin. So the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man has no will, but that it is in spiritual bondage to sin. So now that we've understand that the total depravity teaches man is not utterly depraved and that man does have a will, we'll continue on to see what the doctrine does teach. For us, uh, to look at this in its entirety, I am going to break down and look at three smaller doctrines inside of the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, if you look at your thesis statement that I gave earlier, uh, we're, we're actually going to follow this the entire definition from beginning to end, because all three of those smaller doctrines are in your thesis statement. So first, the doctrine of total depravity goes on to teach that by the fall of Adam, man has inherited original sin. The doctrine of original sin, the, the first of the smaller doctrines, calls back to the first sin, the sin of Adam and the garden. Because of this sin, the entire human race has been changed and affected from its original created purpose, changing what was once pure to now being only sinful. And this doctrine does not solely focus on just the sin of Adam, but it defines the consequences to the human race because of this first sin. The fall of Adam was so serious that it affected the whole of mankind and the whole of each individual person. It means that there is not a single part of mankind that has not been corrupted by sin. Original sin has corrupted the physical body. What was once created perfect has been ruined, and this is why we experience things like illness and death. It has corrupted our minds, and though we can still think and we can reason, original sin causes mankind to be hostile towards God, left in his sinful nature, to hate, to murder of the heart. It has corrupted the will of man. It leaves man in bondage and slavery to the sinfulness of their minds, allowing them to carry out the sinful desires of the flesh. And now, if that's as far as this doctrine goes, most Christians would agree with you. Most Christians agree that we're fallen creatures, we've had sin infiltrate all of mankind, that we're born into a sinful nature, and that we all fall short. However, the doctrine of total depravity digs much deeper than giving just a general understanding that man is sinful. 
Original sin shows us the repercussions for Adam's sin, and those repercussions are an inherited sin nature that has brought corruption to mankind. So the next question worth asking is, how much has the inherited sin nature of man, or how much has this inherited sin nature caused man to fall? And the answer to this question leads us to our second smaller doctrine, the doctrine of radical corruption. The word radical has its roots from the Latin meaning core. The idea of the word radical is used to explain something that permeates to the core. It communicates the idea that this something is not just surface level, but to the very center. That man's sin is central to his existence and to his core. I'm going to take a drink. Give me one sec. (laughs) Ligonier Ministries does something interesting called the State of Theology Poll. And they poll average Americans and evangelicals every two years, and they ask them theological questions. The results of their questions are online, as well as all, as well as all the other previous years. But the most recent poll here in 2018 had 3,000 respondents. Um, of the many questions asked in this poll, one is very important for us to look at when we consider the doctrine of total depravity and the second smaller doctrine of radical corruption. When asked to agree with this statement, Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 52% of evangelicals agreed. 3% weren't sure, and 17% somewhat disagreed. Meaning you have 52% of evangelicals that cannot or do not definitively affirm the sinful nature of man. And by combining the rest of the percentages together, 72% of evangelicals and Americans combined can't or won't clearly admit that people are bad by nature. And I'm using this polling data to show that there is a major disconnect that we have in America when it comes to understanding the sinfulness of man. We admit that we are sinners, but we seem to think that this sin is, is something trivial or surface level because we agree with statements that say man is sinful. But then we turn right around and believe deep down inside that man is still good at his core. It's because we don't see the very core of man as being sinful or bad. It is this understanding of sin that perpetuates the belief that government intervention and education will erase crime. The belief couldn't be further from the truth. We can provide all the education and governmental needs you could possibly think of, and people will still continue to pursue criminal acts because this is our nature from our birth. We want to sin. We want to carry out the sinful desires of the heart. So behavior and environment and, and environmental changes will not change man's nature. Now, chapter 9, paragraph 3 of the 1689 Baptist Confession gives us a great answer to the question, how much has the inherited sin nature caused man to fall? The confession reads, Man, by his fall into the state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from the good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. This is what the doctrine of radical corruption shows us. That man is not a good person deep down inside who just happens to commit some sins, but that man by his very nature, the center of his being, is sinful to the very core. So by the fall of Adam in the garden, we have inherited original sin, 
And this sin is a nature that has corrupted mankind. This corruption is a radical corruption, permeating to the very core of every single individual. Now that we've looked at the two smaller doctrines, we now move on to our third and final smaller doctrine as we look at the doctrine of total depravity. And this third and, smi- this third and smaller doctrine is the doctrine of moral inability. This doctrine states that because of man's radical corruption, because his sin nature has permeated man to his very core, man is then morally unable of producing any moral or spiritual good. And it is at this last and final smaller doctrine that there's the biggest amount of pushback when people consider the doctrine of total depravity. This is where people find the biggest hang-up when looking at total depravity because of this doctrine of moral inability. Now, to address this doctrine, we're going to take a moment to look at church history. The doctrine is, is moral inability. And I know that we've spent a good amount of time on this already, um, on this second heading, but bear with me here. We're almost out of the woods. But when looking at this third, smaller doctrine of moral inability, we must look at one of the most influential arguments in all of church history. In the late, thir- sorry, not 1300s, but in the late 300s to early 400s, a famous church father by the name of by the name of Augustine of Hippo, had a famous argument with a man named Pelagius. What they argued so passionately about was the ability of man to redeem himself. Pelagius held the belief that man can live a perfect and sinless life and that some have, by their own ability, apart from the grace of God. And so long story short, in this heated debate, Pelagius was refuted, he was condemned for his teachings, and he was charged with heresy. However, What came out of this famous debate was a modified view called semi-Pelagianism. This theological view is what Jacobus Arminius, the man behind the remonstrance, held to regarding the grace of God and the redemption of man. The semi-Pelagian states, grace is absolutely necessary and you can't be saved without grace. However, the semi-Pelagian asserts that it is by the grace of God plus the exertions of the human will that saves. That man is able to do this because he is not as sinful as Augustine and Luther and Calvin had asserted before. So Arminius actually writing uh, on the teachings of Calvin and Luther wrote, and I quote, Our will is not in bondage or dead, but weakened and enfeebled. This is why the remonstrance in the modern day Arminians, this is what they believe in regards to salvation. So they believe that it is grace of God plus the exertions of the human will to freely choose to believe in God that saves us and brings us to salvation. Now, the third and smaller doctrine of moral inability was accredited to Augustine out of this debate between him and Pelagius. Augustine said that the power of the fall was so strong that it was so great in mankind that only God, by his grace alone, can change the human soul and bring that person to faith. And this is why Augustine was also one of the principal architects in the idea that was recovered in the Reformation of the familiar doctrine of sola gratia, saved by grace alone. So not only did Augustine believe this, but so did Luther. Martin Luther said that man since the fall is, quote, utterly indisposed, disabled, made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. Augustine Luther, Calvin, all believed that man was so sinful that he could not will, seek, or do any spiritual or moral good whatsoever. 
And this is why grace alone saves man, not grace plus the exertions of man's will. And the term for this saving act of God, God saving by himself, is called monergism. And if you were paying attention to David's sermon last week, you will, be, um, you will remember that he actually used this word in his sermon. Monergism means that God works alone in the saving of man, that man contributes nothing to his salvation because he's, he physically and spiritually can't. This is an impossible task. He is morally unable. Because man is morally unable to do any spiritual good or respond to God in any way, any shape or form, God must save by himself. Now, this view totally opposes the Arminian view of God's grace plus the exertions of man for salvation. And their view is what is called synergism. Synergism means that together by the work of both man and God, you will be saved. And can you see now why the attack of the Arminians on the Calvinists would cause such a stir that a national synod would then be called? Because these are two entirely different understandings of the sinfulness of man and their salvation. So this is why the third and smaller doctrine is so controversial for people when they come to the doctrine of total depravity. People do not want to believe that man is this sinful. They do not want to be told that they are unable of seeking God. They do not want to be told that they are unable of choosing God. They want to be able to say that they freely chose God and in their salvation all by themselves. That it was the use of their will by themselves to choose God in salvation. So as we clear the tree line of the second main heading, let's do a short recap of what we just went over so far. Because of the sin of Adam, man has inherited original sin. This, this original sin has left man radically corrupt. But just how corrupt did it go? It has left man morally unable of producing any spiritual good. So can you see how these doctrines all fit inside one another? And if you can't, I have an illustration that may be able to help you. When I was a little boy, I remember going to my grandparents' house, and I had a favorite toy that I just thought was just absolutely fascinating. I remember just sitting and playing with it for hours, just being super intrigued. My grandma had, what a set, had a set of what are called Russian nesting dolls. Are any of you guys familiar with these? Yes? Okay, cool. I, I texted Dave and Stephen, like, if people in our generation will know what these are, I'm sure everybody else can understand. So I wanted to make sure. If you don't know what they are, just look them up on Google. You, you'll understand. So anyway, they had, this was a set of wooden dolls of decreasing size that were placed one inside of another. Uh, they had very cartoonish faces and outfits that were painted on them. And you would take the first wooden doll, and it would be the biggest one. And you would separate it top from bottom. And when you did, there was another smaller wooden doll inside of it. And you would repeat this process until you'd find the smallest one. So typically you would have four to five of these, of these wooden dolls going from largest to smallest. And I just remember sitting and wondering, like, who created this idea? This is so cool. I was just fascinated with them. But I use this as an illustration to show that these doctrines work in the exact same way. The doctrine of total depravity is the biggest of the four wooden dolls. And it contains inside of it the other three doctrines. When all put together, the nesting dolls looked as one large doll. And once you started inspecting and realizing and playing with it, you found that there were more left inside. So inside of the doctrine of total depravity is the doctrine of original sin. And this doctrine shows us the repercussions of, man's, of, of Adam's sin. And the repercussions are an inherited sin nature that has brought corruption to mankind. 
Inside the doctrine of original sin is the doctrine of radical corruption. The doctrine that shows us that man is not a good person deep down inside that just sins a little bit, but that man at his very nature is sinful to the core and sinful in the center of his being. And inside the doctrine of radical corruption is the last and final of the smaller doctrine of moral inability. This doctrine shows us that because man's sin nature has permeated to the very core, man is morally unable of producing any moral or spiritual good and thus cannot believe the gospel out of his own will. So I hope that this helps you. Um, it, was, it was interesting to have that thought come back to me as I was writing this the other day. To put this in a simpler way, our original sin and radical corruption is so severe that man hates God. He's hostile to God and is a child of wrath. And totally, he is totally incapable of pleasing God, seeking God, desiring God, repenting, having remorse for sin, or believing the gospel for salvation. And here is why there is such a monumental difference between the two theological camps that met and argued at the Synod of Dort. How we understand the, the doctrine of depravity in man will go on to dictate the rest of our theology. So up until this point, we've taken a, a brief look at the history and the teaching of the doctrine of total depravity. Where this doctrine came from, we looked at what this doctrine teaches, and we see why the Reformers believed it. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, all held to the doctrine of total depravity, but who cares? These are great men of God, but great men of God can be wrong. We must be careful, especially in the Reformed camp, to not place these theologians on pedestals and never question what it is that they taught. We must be able to find this doctrine in the scriptures, and this leads us to our third main heading. Is the doctrine of total depravity biblical? Now, I'm just going to be totally honest here. I believe that there's a great amount of evidence for this doctrine to be found in the scriptures. Um, there's just a whole laundry list of verses that we can point to. However, I want to avoid just throwing a ton of scriptures at you back to back. Now, I, I believe that taking time to walk through a few passages will be more beneficial and instead of just rambling off 10 plus verses with no context. So, I've chosen three core passages for us to break down and look at. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verses 9 to 18. And I'll give you a minute to get there. Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. Here we come to a passage where the Apostle Paul is driving home the natural condition of man. In this specific passage, the Apostle Paul does not argue, from the, does not argue the fallen state of man by his mistreatment that he's faced in life, but he appeals back to the Word of God in the Old Testament. Paul collects together verses out of the Psalms and out of the book of Isaiah, quoting Scripture to make this argument. And what we find in these verses is a great deal of evidence for the doctrine of total depravity. So let's go ahead and read this together. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let me ask you, does this explanation of the sinfulness of man convince you that man can freely choose to seek after and believe in God? Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands the things of God, that is. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. Not even one can do spiritual good. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no reverence for the Lord. These charges against man from Scripture clearly demonstrate a will that is in bondage and enslaved to sin. Now for our second passage. It's only a few chapters later. We're still in the book of Romans. Turn with me to chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8. Let's read this together. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here we have the same author, the Apostle Paul, talking about those whose minds are set on the flesh. And now, as many of you know, uh, the flesh is often referred to as the sin that exists in mankind. Paul tells us that those, living, that those living according to the flesh, that is their sin, set their minds on sin. Paul says that the mind set on the flesh, their sin, is hostile to God. Aggressive, confrontational, belligerent, opposed. These are synonyms for the word hostile. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about the unregenerate man. Paul says that sinful man does not submit to God's law. Not that he sometimes does, but that he does not. And Paul then goes on and says, indeed, it cannot. Now, I know we have a lot of educators in this church, and I remember when I was in high school, if I'd asked my teacher, can I go to the bathroom? They would say, I'm sure you can. And then I'd have to ask, may I, may I go to the bathroom? And they'd say, yes, you may, right? The word can describes ability. If you can do something, you have the ability to do it. However, what does Paul say here? He says that sinful man cannot submit to God's law and that he cannot please God. This sounds strikingly similar to the doctrine of moral inability that we, that we already addressed earlier. Paul says that sinful man is hostile to God, does not submit to God's laws, cannot submit to God's laws, or please him because he does not have the ability to. Man does not, man cannot. Man does not possess the ability to. Now the last verse that I want us to look at together is found in the book of Ephesians. It'll be in Ephesians 2. We'll be looking at verse 1 through 5. I'll give you a second to get there as well. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Here we find the exact same author writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul is writing to believers, comparing their former lives as unbelievers to their current status as believers. Now, what I want you to do is to pay attention 
to how Paul describes these people as they were unbelievers. So let's read this together. As you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man or no one may boast. Now, a few things in this passage that I think are crucial to look at, again, is how Paul describes these people as unbelievers. He says that they were dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And he says it twice in nine verses. Paul is telling us that the unregenerate man is spiritually dead in their sin. Now, let me ask you a simple question that you've probably heard a million times. What can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Remember the quote that Arminius wrote when he was talking about Luther and Calvin? Arminius said, Our will is not in bondage or dead, but weakened and enfeebled. Paul did not say that man is spiritually weak or spiritually sick. He said that man is dead in his sins. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not, a not as a result of works. So keep in mind, the Armenian believes that grace is necessary for salvation, but that is grace plus the exertions of the human will to freely choose to believe in God that saves us and brings us to salvation. Paul says this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And if God says that man plays no role in being saved then this would have to mean that God saves by grace alone, by himself alone, apart from any will or work of man. This is monergism. When we read, the sent when we read this sentence and compare it to the teachings of those who hold to semi-Pelagianism or what we find in the Arminian understanding, is we see that the Arminian understanding is not in perspective of biblical teaching found in God's word. We have many, many more scriptures that we could make our way through, but for the sake of time, we can't. Um, but it is safe to say that the doctrine of total depravity is very much biblical. This understanding of the sinfulness of man is not just here. It's not in just the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament and sprinkled all throughout the scriptures in both old and new. So we've talked about the history behind the five points of Calvinism and the doctrine of total depravity. We've explained what this doctrine teaches. We have seen what this, that this doctrine is very biblical. And now it is time to make our way to our last heading. Why does the doctrine of total depravity matter? For this last main heading, I have three reasons for why this doctrine matters. First, 
the doctrine of total depravity, matters because it provides us with a correct view of man. This doctrine will remind you that of who you're actually talking to at work or who you run into at the grocery store or who drops off your mail in your mailbox. That the sweet old lady across the street that waves you every day when you go to work is actually a radical sinner who is hostile to God and needs to repent and believe the gospel unless she already has. Every person, I mean, that, that lady may be very nice, very, may be very friendly to you, but deep down inside, she has a heart that is desperately wicked. Every person you know that is, a, that is an unbeliever has, by the fall of Adam, inherited original sin, radically corrupting them to their very core. They are dead in their sin and morally unable of producing any spiritual good. And not only is this just the people that we interact with on a normal day-to-day basis, but this really tells us about our children as well. It gives us a correct view of what our children really are. Our children are not innocent. They are wicked from their birth. King David, in Psalm 51.5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Our children are adorable. They bring us joy. They bring us laughter. I love them to death. But make no mistake, they're sinners. And this is why we put so much work into our ministry here at the church. They too have wicked and evil hearts. Children who have not came to faith in Christ are dead in their sins. They're totally depraved. They're haters of God. They're hostile in their nature. And this is why I pray every week, you can ask Dave and Steve, I pray every week that God would save our children in this church. And I hope that you do too. The second reason that this doctrine matters is because this doctrine gives us the correct understanding of how God saves. And that is monergistically. God saves man by himself without any help of man. Man in his sinful nature hates God, is hostile to God, and is a child of wrath. He's totally incapable of pleasing, seeking, desiring, repenting, submitting to God, having remorse for his sin or believing the gospel for salvation without God moving first. Christians, see how gracious and powerful your heavenly Father is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The Father knows that no man can come to him, because it's an impossible task. He knows that there is no spiritual good in you. And so he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the life that we could not live of perfect obedience. And Jesus Jesus goes and he dies an undeserving death in our place for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God and for the sins of man and depravity for all who would believe. And upon placing your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your sin has been washed away. And the righteousness of Christ was given to you, making you blameless before the Father above. You are a corpse rotting at the bottom of the ocean, and God chose you and brought you to shore and sovereignly breathed spiritually life in you. We can't boast in anything because we have done nothing. This is grace alone. And for anyone tonight that is not a believer, your sin is before you. You know that. Believe in the person and work of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel and you can be saved. 
And if anything, this should actually give us freedom in our evangelism. We know that salvation is a sovereign work of God. We know that we cannot change the heart of man. We couldn't change our own hearts, but we know who can. It is the work of God to change the hearts of man, not ours. So, as David was saying last week in a sermon in the book of Mark, spread the seed. Just spread the seed and evangelize. It is the job of the Lord to choose how those seeds grow. It's not you. And lastly, the third and final reason that this doctrine matters is because it is the foundation that the other four points of the doctrines of grace are built upon. The rest of our theology rests on the understanding of how depraved man is. How we answer that question will dictate the entirety of our theology. If man is dead in his sins, unable to do any spiritual good, then man is hopeless and has no chance of salvation unless God sovereignly moves first. And it is this understanding that allows the other four points of the doctrines of grace to stand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come and die in the place of wicked sinners like us. Lord, we thank you for moving first, for saving us, taking our totally depraved hearts of stone and giving us a new heart that loves you. We ask that your people would be encouraged tonight by this message, that we would better understand who we are, who you are, that we will be motivated to go and preach the gospel knowing that it is not on us to convert them, but it is your job. We ask that you would continue to help us as we further this sermon series over the next couple months. Give us clarity and understanding. And we ask all these things in Christ. Amen.